Our loving Heavenly Father, you are a God of holiness. We tremble at your word, Lord, as the word was read. We we don't know how we can stand before you, Lord, and let the earth be silent before you as you reign from your temple, regardless of what we are seeing on earth, Father. I ask you to give my lips clarity and help me to speak words that you want me to speak with the tone you want me to speak. And above all else, Lord, as I preach to myself, uh, help us to have hearts that wish to receive and obey. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, as Elizabeth read it, I was like, I don't think after that rendition you need a preacher because I think she's kind of made it very clear how Habakkuk would have spoken. So, the Word of God stands on its own, and uh, I think that's a very intimidating passage uh, to preach on. Because there's so much going on, you know. Uh, so let's let's get into it. Last week, when Uncle uh, Prakash George was preaching, he shared that uh, Habakkuk was asking God a series of questions: Why are there so many bad things happening in the land of Judah? And God gave him the answer. He said, "Well, I'm going to deal with it, and it may surprise you, but I'm going to use the Chaldeans. I'm going to use the Babylonians." Uh, Habakkuk has a series of follow-up questions, and that's where chapter 2 comes in. So we're right in the middle of Habakkuk engaging with God through prayer. So let's keep our Bibles open and let's look at how we can learn many things from something that was written nearly 2,700 years back. So to give you a bit of the historical context, I'll just ask Elizabeth to put two slides so you see where this, uh, where these things are happening. You can see a map here. Uh, The green section is basically the extent of the Babylonian Empire. So in the Bible, Babylon and Chaldea are used interchangeably. The Chaldeans were a high caste, a high level social elite of the Babylonian Empire. And Judah is that little blue area. That's basically Judah. That's completely overrun. So this is the historical context in which Habakkuk is military power. And uh, Elizabeth, the next slide, and then we can close. A hundred years later, they have continued to dominate that space. So I want you to keep this picture in your mind as Habakkuk is talking, and he will be limited to just the first verse, from verses 2 till the verse, to to verse 20. Uh, It's basically God speaking. So I just want you to remember this map in your mind, that the bulk of what God is saying is concerning this group of people who are completely overrunning God's people and why he's saying the things that he does. So when you look at your Bibles and you read verse 1, we basically have only Habakkuk talking about his own response in prayer because when we read the words, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the rampart, he's not talking about a physical rampart, he's not talking about uh, a watchtower at the edge of the city. He is talking about inward preparation, inward uh, introspection, and inward receptivity towards what God is going to speak to him inside. So I think this is a very simple but very effective way that Habakkuk was preparing himself because God speaks in spirit and in truth, as the Gospel of John says in John chapter 4, verse 23. He who worships God must worship him in spirit and in truth. So how does Habakkuk prepare? He prepares himself by going deep within. So this is not just physical language of physically stationing himself at the edge of the city. He's talking about a heart preparation, a heart uh, uh, kind of 
uh, waiting upon God, waiting and expecting God to answer. So I think just as we get off into chapter 2, we have a very simple lesson for prayer, which is that when we pray, we must expect God to answer. But are we ready for God to speak to us? So if you look at chapter chapter 2, verse uh, 1, it just says, I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And he also has an expectation. And how I may reply when I am reproved. So he, he, he kind of knows what God is going to say. He's expecting God to speak in a certain way and he doesn't know what God is going to say. So that's why when we are engaging with God, we are engaging with another being. He's completely different, completely holy, completely separate, but he does engage with his people. So did Habakkuk come across as cynical? No, he's expecting God to answer. So I think sometimes when we pray, we don't actually expect God to answer. We sort of don't think he will answer. We don't think he's going to engage with us. We don't actually believe in the things we're praying. But that's not what we find in the Bible. That's not what we find in the book of Habakkuk. That's not what we see in this verse. He's expecting God to answer. So I think that's a very simple lesson for prayer, that when we go into prayer, we prepare ourselves knowing that God will engage with us. And of course, God being holy, he always has the right to remain silent. That's the end of the chapter, but that's a different story altogether. And then when we move into chapter 2, verses 2, 3, and 4, I want to spend a little bit of time extra because these are extremely significant verses. Why are these significant verses? Because one word is repeated a number of times. Depending on your translation, in verses 2 and 3, you may have the word vision repeated once. So you have vision repeated again, twice. And some of your translation may have the word revelation. Okay, so when we look into the original language, what uh, God is speaking here is that God wants us not to repent, uh, to depend only on our biological sight. This is God saying that reality, that the real issues of life depend on what the core reality of the world is. So when you have the word vision in the Bible, it is talking about life as it is at its very deep, very spiritual, very inward, very moral, very uh, fundamental realities. It's the root source from which we get our values. It's also narrow because once you get a God-given vision, you know you will make decisions in a certain way. And additionally, Habakkuk is also told by God that this vision, this revelation, will not happen immediately. It may require you to wait upon God because it is a God-given vision. It is a God-given revelation. These are God-given values. And it may tarry, but wait for it because it will come to pass. You may be thinking, I don't understand exactly what's going on here. So sometimes it helps us to look at other scriptures, to interpret scriptures. And if you look at Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18, Solomon says, using the same word, where there is no vision, the people perish. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. So obviously what God is saying to Habakkuk right off the bat is that his people need to live by what God himself will reveal. His people need to live in a dependence on him. His people need to realize that the things that God says may not immediately come to pass. And that though things may delay, as Habakkuk was asking in the beginning, tarry, wait, it will surely come to pass. So you can obviously see that 
when god is speaking he is speaking about very uh, big matters very uh, very uh, to our modern mind uh, very abstract things but ultimately we will see that when we look at verses 2 3 and 4 this will help us understand the rest of the chapters uh, the, the rest of the verses in this chapter so i want you to turn with me to verse 4 and again god is speaking and uh, the difficulty i had with this verse was that when i when i landed at this verse and i was checking some of the commentaries some of the scholars actually said uh, this verse might be the most important verse not only in the book of habakkuk not only in the prophets but possibly in the entire old testament so chapter 2 verse 4 is an extremely important verse in the entire bible uh those of you who are familiar with the new testament know that paul refers to this verse a number of times in romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 we read that out as a reminder in the week paul is quoting this verse verbatim as he's talking about the justification by faith and also in galatians uh chapter 2 verse 16 in galatians chapter 3 verse 11 paul refers to the righteous shall live by faith So when we are looking at chapter two verse four, it is a lot more significant than we can imagine. And basically, what God is saying is that there are basically two lifestyles that He recognizes: that all of human behavior, all of human activity, can be based either on pride, a lifestyle based on pride, and all that goes with pride, or it will be based on righteousness by faith. So why is he saying this? What is the meaning of living by pride? These are two completely different ways of living. These are value systems that organize how we make our decisions, how we organize our time, how we decide our schedule, how we choose our life partners, how we choose our way of raising children, our finances. Everything is referred to here. This is a universal statement. The righteous shall live by faith. and god says as for the proud one and of course historically he is referring to the chaldeans because he is answering habakkuk's question he is saying that at the root of the chaldeans they are basically a very very proud people they are very proud they are very self sufficient they are extremely resourceful they have a very uh, powerful culture they have sophisticated science sophisticated astronomy sophisticated ways of ruling everyone knows about the hanging bab hanging babylon hanging gardens of babylon so this civilization was extremely strong you could see that through the map but god says the righteous shall live by faith so what is this life of faith what does it mean to live by faith on the one hand you have the lifestyle that's based on pride and i would i would think in my mind that there are basically three characteristics of those who live uh with a self with a sense of self sufficiency they have a sense of desire to control and they also have a lot of resources they may have intellectual resources they may have cultural resources they may be able to dominate people with their abilities so proud people are not people who depend on god proud people always have an answer proud people and proud societies always know where they're going as opposed to this the lifestyle by faith is completely different and this is god speaking so what is this lifestyle of faith well first of all faith must depend on god faith requires an object faith requires a person to depend on okay faith in the bible is not faith in faith 
Faith requires depending on God, consulting with God. And you may not know what is ahead because you're always waiting upon God to tell you what to do. So that's why these are two completely different lifestyle choices that God is saying are the basic ways in which people behave, people operate. And the life of faith, when Habakkuk was receiving this, was not alien to him. This is not the first time he's hearing about this. The great father of uh, the Jewish nation, Abraham, was a man of faith. In Genesis chapter 11, we read that God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And what did Abraham do? He left everything and went. Did God tell him where he was going? He didn't tell him where he was going. How long did Abraham have to wait? How long did Abraham have to wait for uh, his children? He had to wait for nearly 25 years. He was waiting and waiting, but he was obedient. And that's why God says, and the Israelites would have understood that life is fundamentally by faith. And even in the history of the church, this is such an important verse because Martin Luther referred to this verse in his epistle to the Romans and in his epistle to the Galatians. So at the time when even Luther was writing, there was a lot of corruption in the Catholic Church. There was an emphasis on justification and being saved by the deeds you could do, by the money you could pay, by the things that you could rack up, right? So Martin Luther understood that actually justification in the biblical scheme of things is not based on what you do, but what you do for God through yourself. And that's why the verbatim, the exact words that he is using are coming from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. It is a very, very important verse. So life by faith is not a New Testament idea. It is there throughout the Old Testament. Hebrews 11 is a full record of all the people who lived by faith. It includes even Samson, whom we would have written off. It includes even Lot, whom we would have written off. So God has a very different view about how people live and why people live. So we come to the issue of values. How do we live? Are we living fundamentally by faith? Or do we always have to have answers? Because that's what God says is a characteristic of those who are proud. They want to have knowledge. They want to have information. They want to have resources. But the person of faith may not be able to give answers. The person of faith may not know what's going to happen. The person of faith may say, I have asked God, I have not received an answer. So how do we live? That's a question I think we have to keep asking ourselves. What are the, what are the core values around which we live? Remember that this is God speaking. This is not an opinion, this is not an interpretation, this is God's verbatim words. So when God is speaking, he has a certain moral authority, he has a certain intellectual authority. He has an ability to see to the core. That's why that Hebrew word uh, vision is actually not just biological vision. It is actually seeing to the core of reality. It is almost like uh, the combination of somebody who can combine an MRI scanner with a PET machine with your biological eyes. So you can see without invading. You can see and penetrate why what is happening is happening. And that is what the root word in the Hebrew means. Wait for the vision It is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal and it will not fail. This is God speaking. And then in verse 4 it says, As for the proud one, his soul is not right within. This is God speaking about an entire society, about the entire Chaldean Empire that is that he is using to invade his people and punish his people. So what is the question that Habakkuk had asked? He had asked in chapter 1, the second half, he had said, 
why are you using unholy people to judge us are they going to take us by the nose and like fish are they going to destroy us and god says i know who these people are and i will punish them as well i will punish them as well and this is how the rest of this passage begins but god begins by making general observations about humanity and now it gets more specific to the chaldeans themselves uh, as elizabeth was reading you may have heard her using a word we don't use a lot these days and that's the word woe right so the word woe is an old english word it's not used a lot these days but it's there in some of your translations and it basically means uh the anguish and the suffering that will come from misfortune affliction or grief and i want to ask you if you know who used this word the most in the entire bible can you take a guess jesus you're correct jesus used it 12 times and in the old testament the largest number of times this word is used is by ezekiel and ezekiel is a much larger book so in this one chapter god uses this word five times so that's how intensely god is saying this is the fivefold woe that is going to come upon the chaldeans mr habakkuk and this is why i'm going to judge them so i will use them to judge you but that's not the end of the story they will also be judged and even after they are judged i'm going to make some observations about humanity as a whole and how humanity in general must live that's why we keep going back to chapter 2 verses 3 2 3 and 4 we have to keep going back to it again and again to understand why god says what he's saying so there are five woes five conditions of deep affliction that uh, god is very unhappy and happy about with the chaldeans so let's look at verses 5 uh, and then we'll move forward between 6 to 10 and what does god say about the chaldeans and their desire for expansion depending on the translation you have in verse 5 it says he enlarges his appetite like sheol basically it means they will keep expanding as long as they can they will keep going forward as long as they can they just want to conquer 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 so you could see from that map that there's tremendous capacity right so if you look at current events uh, in that area uh, there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of conflict in the last 5 to 10 years and that was just to get isis out you had to have two superpowers you had to have a lot of local militia members just to get the IS, isis out of a small area in that region So this region that we see in the Bible is full of a history of warfare. It is full of a history of violence. So God is not saying that for the first time the Chaldeans have come and they are violent. They are not the only ones. And they have a violent appetite that is as large as hell. That's God's language. But what's the root cause? The root cause is pride because they want to be self-sufficient, they want to be strong, they want to have control. So that's the first woe. and then god in his uh, uh response in in verse 6 you also see that god is anticipating what the people subjected to the chaldeans are also going to say so the people who are going to be conquered are also going to curse the chaldeans in turn and what we see here is that god understands the punches and the counter punches of world politics 
He does not need a BBC update, an NDTV update, any kind of breaking news. He knows what people are going to say when things are done to them. So this is what the vision means. It means that God is seeing through to the reality. He's seeing through to the core. He knows how and why people do things the way they do, both, both at the individual level and as well as the national level, at the social level, at the military level. But he also knows how the people who are crushed will also respond. And there's a lot of very harsh language. So look at verses 7 and 8. And you see that there's a tremendous emphasis, not just on the military conquest, but there's also financial conquest. There's financial creditors, there's looting, there's plunder. And this all leads to more violence, more bloodshed, and more destruction of what is around us. So this is a very dramatic picture that God is painting. And God is not approving of this kind of lifestyle, this kind of uh, political behavior. And when we move forward into verse 9, God goes even deeper and he gets to even one more root cause. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. So in other words, God is saying that the real reason why these proud people want to do it is basically for financial security. They want to be protected from trouble. They want a very large series of walls around them so that they cannot be touched. And God says, woe to him. So my translation uses the word evil gain. Your translations may have unjust gain, dishonest gain. And in this day and age, when we think about uh, profits, we think that profits are morally neutral, right? You just get the profit. Profit nikalna hai. Kaise bhi karo, sell the item and we'll get the profit, right? People who are in business understand that. But why does God attach an adjective to that word? He says it is evil gain. Remember that this is God speaking. Why is he calling a certain way of acquiring wealth evil? It's because God sees things through a moral lens. So the objective may be good. You want security, but the means are evil. And this is the third woe. And when we look at verse 10, we see something very interesting. I don't know how your, translate, how your translations uh, describe it. Elizabeth's translation was slightly different. If you look at verse 10, it says, You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. He's referring to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. So you are sinning against yourself. So when I came to this verse, I was beginning to wonder, why is God saying this? Why should he be bothered that the Chaldeans are sinning against themselves? Why? If you look at Romans chapter 3, verse 23, what is the definition of sin? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But why is God saying you are sinning against yourself? They haven't heard the gospel. They have not heard Paul. They have not heard Romans. What kind of tone of voice do you think God would have used when he was speaking in this way to Habakkuk? Do you think he was gloating that they are sinning against themselves? Do you think he would have been upset that they are sinning against themselves? Do you think he was happy? What, 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 what's going on in God's heart, even as the woes are being pronounced, when God is saying they are sinning against themselves? 
I don't have a clear answer in the Old Testament context, but when you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, God says, The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to repent, any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God doesn't want people to sin. This is not just a New Testament idea. God, in the Old Testament, he sent even Jonah to preach to Nineveh to repent. And the Nineveh, the people of Nineveh, the people of the Chaldees had no covenant with God. So why did God send a prophet to a non-Jewish land? It's because there are foreshadows of the gospel even in the Old Testament, even in the midst of this kind of situation that Habakkuk is facing. So when we move forward into verses 13 and 14, it's almost like things are building up. So first God says there are proud people and there are people who live by faith. Then he says there are people who live with an appetite like Sheol. And then then he says there are people who use credit and finances to bind people. And then there's bloodshed and violence. It goes higher even by one more notch. If you look at verse 12 and 13, it's almost like there's a peak Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toil for fire? Plural. It's not just the Chaldeans. Plural. Peoples and nations grow weary for nothing. Here is my submission to you. This is another universal statement that God is making. If you've been to any museum, any uh, documentary that you've seen, how many societies actually have efforts and results that actually last? How many things actually last? Is the Babylonian Empire there today? It's not. Is the Assyrian Empire there today? It's not. Is the Ottoman Empire here today? It's not. So human efforts that are independent of God, do not last. So why is God using the word grow weary for nothing? Why does God say people's toil for fire? Fire destroys everything. We saw that in the riots. So God is making certain universal statements about the final results of a lifestyle based on pride. You can get what you want for a certain amount of time, but its end is nothing. And I would submit to you that Uh, we need to think about why we want to do our work. Why do we want to choose our careers? Today, a lot of people would love to work for a, I would suppose, a multinational corporation, right? Multinational corporations offer very high salaries. They offer a lot of resources, a lot of uh, growth development uh, opportunities, and it it looks good good on your CV, right? I did a little bit of digging around and I found out that the first multinational corporation was actually the Dutch East India Company. So it's actually uh, the oldest company that was founded and uh, accountants will tell you that you need double entry bookkeeping to be able to do your accounts across long distances. Uh, you also need a certain legal status for a corporation or a company to be different from a partnership. So the Dutch East India Company was the first company in the world and was founded in 1602. It was very profitable. It made a lot of money. It went all the way to Indonesia and various other places. But it financially collapsed in 1799. So that's 
197 years. And today, if you look at the Bombay Stock Exchange, the Sensex or the Nifty, how many companies on that list have been there for the last 50 years? 75 years, 100 years. And yet people work so hard for these corporations. People give their lives for these companies, right? So what would God say to these corporations? I think if you look at First John chapter 2, verse 17, you have God's view of what's really worth investing in, what's really worth a lifetime of effort. So turn with me to 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. And it says, and this is God speaking through the Apostle John, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you do the will of God, do you think your works will last 197 years or something else? God says if you do his will, it will abide forever. Which lifestyle choice do you want to make? Whose will do you want to do? Why do you want to do it? So I would submit to those of us who are, whether at the beginning of our careers, the question to ask is not which organization or where will I get the highest salary. The question to ask is who is going to reward me finally? Who's going to reward me? And this, I would submit to you, is a decision you need to take by faith. And that's why, again, we go back to Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. In Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 10, God says many efforts will come to nothing. But God says in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. And he says the same thing in 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. You do my will, your works will abide forever. God uses the word forever. This is not an interpretation. So whom are you going to serve actually becomes a question of worship. It actually becomes a question of worship. Your career choices are a matter of worship. Where you settle down is a matter of worship. It all boils down to whom you will serve. That's why Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is so significant. This is God speaking. So you may say, okay, let's move on, Mr. Jacob. Let's get to the end of this chapter. You may say, what's the connection between chapter 2 verse 13 and what chapter 2 verse 14? God says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But what is God's glory? What do you mean when you say God's glory? I would simply submit to you that God's glory is the sum total of all of his attributes. God is wise. God is powerful. God is intelligent. God is omniscient. And God is able, good, merciful, and just all at once. You may say, well, what does this mean? I mean, what does this verse actually mean? Uh, if you turn with me to the book of Genesis, uh, Jacob had an amazing dream, right? He was at a place called Bethel. And that night he had a dream of a ladder going from earth to heaven and angels were sort of going up and down. And it says in Genesis chapter 28, verse 16, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not even aware of it. So is the glory of the Lord something that we are not aware of? He said, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. But this is not what Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 is saying. God, remember God is speaking and God is saying that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. That means people will come to the truth, to the reality that to God alone belong 
all glory, all power, and all honor. In the same way that waters cover the Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Sea, the Atlantic Ocean, the Mediterranean, so in that day, people will know collectively, comprehensively, scientists, philosophers, political leaders, military leaders, judges, that only God deserves our complete attention. This is not a language that people on the TV will understand. So it requires faith. You have to take God at at his word. This hasn't happened yet completely. It is happening in stages as the gospel goes forward. But it it hasn't completely happened yet. So again we go back to chapter 2 verses 2, 3 and 4 that the righteous shall live by faith. This is not faith in faith. This is faith in God. Faith in the promises that God has the capability of executing. You might say, well, 2,700 years have passed. Nothing has happened. Have faith. God will drive his vision to its end because God is speaking. So as we move forward towards the end of this uh, very intense chapter, I think as we, we go down from verses 15 to 19, the kind of intensity comes down a little bit. And when we look at verses 15 and 16, we can e- easily make connections with probably the media industry. We can, we can think of television shows. We can think of advertising. And in the last few years, there's been a lot of discussion about sexual harassment. Uh, just last, just in the last two weeks, there was a very famous trial in New York City about a person I don't wish to name. And he was judged for sexual harassment. Very powerful Hollywood producer. He took unusual advantage of the women who worked with him or associated with him. This is not something new. God has foreseen this. Not decades ago, not last year, 2,700 years back. So God's vision, God's revelation penetrates. And entire industries are built on alcohol, you know, taking advantage of people, making them weak, making them sign contracts. This is how it works. Even if you're an atheist, you will say, well, this, this is accurate. This is how it works. It may be very cultural. It may be very sophisticated. But this is, this is really how it is. And God says, a woe to this. Shame on this. So may I, may I invite us to think again about our situation. You may say, okay, this is good historical analysis. It's all very interesting, good parallels, all of that. But how does it apply to us? What did Jesus say was the definition of murder? He said it's when you call another person a fool. Right? He says when you call somebody a fool, you're basically committing murder. He redefined adultery. You don't have to actually sleep with someone, but it happens a lot before that. So that's basically the revelation, the penetrating vision that God has, which he's referring to in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Record the vision. Inscribe it on tablets. We have the tablets right here in front of us. It's not on stone. It's in paper. So Habakkuk did his job. And when these things are written, will you act on it? Will you run with it? That's what God expects us to do when we open the Bible. And as we look at verse 17, it's a repetition of the degree of violence that uh, has come again and again. And the only difference between this and the previous verses is that God says even animals and beasts will suffer violence. And in verses 18 and 19, as we draw to the close of this chapter, we see that God is also not very happy about both the people who produce physical idols and the people who consume physical idols. So as, as some, as a minority in India, we very well understand that, you know, God doesn't want us to, uh, have idols, but 
to apply these verses in our contemporary context, I would imagine that uh, when Uncle Prince was also uh, preaching, I mean, when Uncle Prince was sharing, he also said, uh, the, he quoted a verse in First John, and he said, Beloved, keep yourselves from idols. And he's speaking to Christians. So this problem of idolatry is not limited to Habakkuk's context. It's a warning that continues throughout the Bible, not just the Old Testament, but also through the New Testament. So what are these idols? I would very simply submit to you that idols are things that give us satisfaction. They may be physical, they may be intangible, but they take the place of God. So it could be even knowledge. It could even be uh, excellence. You know, you will have to figure out what the idols in our life individually and collectively are. But God says, uh, as in verse 19, Woe to him who takes a piece of wood and says, Awake, to a mute stone arise, and that is your teacher. It's overlaid with gold and silver, and there's no breath at all inside it. And this is the God who in Genesis, when he formed man, he is the one who gave breath to man, and man became a living being. So God is making a sarcastic remark here. He's saying, you're trying to play God? You can't even put breath into it. And I am the one who gives the breath of life. So this is God's fivefold woe to Habakkuk about the Chaldeans. And these are very, very intense statements. You may say, okay, so how does this translate for us? How does this connect with us? What, what can we do about all this? When we look at chapter 2, verse 20, and we're going to close, the Bible says, God says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God is not saying to Habakkuk, this is all the questions I'll entertain. But he's saying that when you see my glory, nobody's going to talk back. Nobody's going to say, who are you? Nobody's going to be able to dare question God. But what's the foundation of this? The foundation of this is living by faith. What does believing chapter 2 verse 20 mean? Living by faith, I would submit to you, requires may require you not being able to compare yourself with a person who has an expensive car and you don't. Living by faith means you may not have answers to those who are making comparisons between you and your classmates, you and the people who live around you. Because you don't have the straightforward answers because when you ask God those questions, God didn't give you an answer. So you have to be very dependent as you live by faith. It also sometimes means that God may be silent. So you've got to have faith that as God asks you to tarry, you will have to wait. So chapter 2 verse 4 is extremely significant because again and again, there are basically two options in life. It all boils down to two ways of life, two pathways of life. So we need to confront ourselves and not ignore this book saying, well, this was in the Old Testament. We have Jesus. The word of God is eternal. There is a certain consistency. There is a certain unity in everything that God says. And I'll close with just a few uh, things that I thought would be helpful for living by faith. I had done this a few years back when we were doing a study in crosswalk on Habakkuk. Habakkuk on Hebrews chapter 11. So what does it mean to live by faith? What is faith? Faith is a gift from God, so it can be hard to intellectually comprehend. Faith is God's gift, and it has to work for God's purposes. 
Faith also reflects the nature of God and it operates the way God says it has to operate. You'll find that definition in Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 to 6. So the faith that God has given me is not only for me, it's for me to be a blessing to others. And faith increases for those who expect like Habakkuk, but who also do and obey what God says we should do. So it's not just mental agreement. We'll also notice as we live by faith that after we act by faith, we want to obey God more and more. So faith is orientated towards obedience because we are relating to his personal God. We want to obey him more and more and more. We're not just mentally agreeing with him. So the book of James has a lot about this, that faith must translate into works because you're relating to God. And also I've seen that as we walk by faith, we want to submit more to God. We want to yield more to God. We want more of our life. We want more of our thinking, our decision-making, our behavior to be under God's control as we operate by faith. And we also, no, just the previous one, Elizabeth, just the previous one. I've also seen that as we walk in faith, we have a greater desire to study the Bible and obey God. It will increase as we walk by faith. But faith also has, uh, there's also some things that are not actually faith and we need to pay a little bit of attention to this. These are of course not from the book of Habakkuk. Sometimes we go ahead of God, but that's not faith. Faith is dependent upon God and it doesn't presume. Very important not to presume. So it may involve waiting upon God and that will require a lot of patience. Sometimes we impose ourselves on other people, but that's not faith because faith must be a blessing to others. True deeds of faith cost us a lot, but the benefits go to another person. So it can't be self-centered. And lastly, many ideas and actions sometimes actually originate from self-deception, but we call it faith. So we we need to be careful not to use excessively spiritual language. Okay, there is, there is a certain tension in this statement, but people have done unwise things and they call it faith. It's not faith. This is very important because the Bible has a tremendous emphasis on avoiding deception and that, I think the worst kind of deception is self-deception. So we shouldn't call it faith. And lastly, and we see this in the book of Hebrews, all of the results of faith may not be evident in our lifetime. They may not be evident in our lifetime. So Christian living is fundamentally by faith. And that's the connection we have with Habakkuk chapter 2 in its entirety as well. And I believe when we come to the New Testament, uh, Jesus being the object and the perfecter of our faith, he's the one who said man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what God is saying in the way Jesus would have said would have been what these people, these Chaldeans are doing for their security for their financial gain, for their control, for their amassment, it's not good for them, it will actually kill them. So I would say man dare not live by bread alone. It's too dangerous. Man must live by faith. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And Habakkuk got these words many hundreds of years before this Jesus came. And Jesus has been revealed as the exact representation of the nature of God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 is very clear about that. If you can turn your Bibles with me, we'll close with this. Look at Hebrews chapter, sorry, chapter 1. 
God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. So may I invite us to consider, as these words have been written by Habakkuk many hundreds of years back, what are we going to do with it? He did his part by writing them plainly on the tablets and they have faithfully been inscribed and transmitted to us. But how are we going to live? Are we going to live fundamentally by faith or do we want to make decisions ourselves? Because a lot of times Christians mix up both faith and pride. So we need to be very careful that we have purity in our motives and we really want God to be the one who decides and uh, works with us. We need to walk independence upon him. We need to live by vision, not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. So let's just close in prayer. Father, I give you thanks that your word is a two-edged sword and it cuts us both ways, Lord. Help us to live by faith. Help us to be careful to walk in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of knowledge. And your word also says that as we acknowledge you, you will make all our paths straight. So would you do that, Lord? We live in difficult times. We live in confusing times. Uh, we don't know what is next. Help us, Lord, to walk by faith with you. Help us to come to you with our questions. Help us to search the scriptures. Help us to make decisions that are of an eternal value. Help us to turn towards you, Father. Help us not to ignore the lessons that are there in the Bible. And help us to show love towards each other and live for your glory. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.